I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is Conversations About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. This week we are speaking with another artist, Fred Eversley. As you make each piece, you learn from it. And you try to alter the next piece from what you learned on the whole body of work that you've done before. Fred is an artist who came to be recognized at the same time as the light and space movement gained momentum in Southern California. However, unlike the light and space and the Finnish fetish peers of his who often collaborated with scientists and outsourced fabrication of their work, his firsthand technical understanding as a scientist himself He came to Southern California in the 1960s to work as a consulting engineer for NASA, and he spent his early career at the United States' largest aerospace company during that period. They were called BioLabs in Los Angeles. He was enabled to utilize materials in ways that really were unique to his practice, and that's one of the things that's really special about what he does. I know you will really enjoy hearing from him today. He's an incredible storyteller, and we'll get there in just a minute. So you come to art through science, uh, as that experience that you just shared makes clear. And I'd love to ask you to talk about your, your background in science and start to give us some insight into how you see the relationship between art and science. Uh, my background in science was, uh, I went to Brooklyn Tech, which is a scientific high school in New York. Both my father and my godfather, who lived next door to us, were major aerospace engineers. My father was head of research and development for the public aviation. My next door neighbor, my godfather, Norman Grossman, ended up being the president of Grumman Aviation. And so I grew up in, uh, uh, in the uh, knowledge of the aerospace industry. I started working in the aerospace industry when I was still in high school and uh, summer jobs, two years for North American Aviation and then two years for Republic Aviation. They both involved concentration of energy, both in radar systems and then informing titanium bulkheads for the F-103 airplane. And I was on a design team for both programs. And um, I learned a lot, an incredible amount that I'm still applying right now as the basis of um, my art. My art is uh, energy-based. Most of it is parabolic, which is the perfect concentrator of all forms of energy. The only perfect, the only shape 
that is the constant, perfect concentrator of all forms of energy. And when I graduated from college, I postponed my fellowship to University of Pennsylvania Medical School to go to, to, go to Mexico and study art with my then girlfriend, Suzanne Shapiro. Then I went up to LA and went to work for Wiley Laboratories and Elsa Gundo. They assigned me to be on special projects that were all energy related in some way to uh, shape metal or test spaceships or similar kinds of, of activities. And when I uh, left engineering because of my automobile accident, I started applying the same principles of physics to my art and sort of continues on to this state. So you talked about the parabola and how you came to first experiment with it. And you've been using that form now for more than 40 years. And I'm curious about what continues to excite you about it and, and what your relationship is to that form. It allows an infinite number of possibilities with layers of color, with change of different colors, with thicknesses and thinnesses of the layer. I mean, you can go forever going through various combinations and never repeat the same piece. In fact, it's almost impossible for me to exactly repeat the same piece. There's too many variables. So you end up with all types of very interesting things because people basically respond almost inherently, I think, because they, they, my art cuts across all lines of education, all lines of, uh, you know, uh, sophistication. Uh, it's appreciated very as much in uh, the jungles of Brazil as it is in uh, a gallery in New York, LA. I think by accident almost, starting back at age 15, developing to now, I created something that is semi-universal in appeal. Part of what I think might be the essence of what you're talking about, this idea of the, the universal, is that your work is, is about energy and you know it's about perception. And those are things that are accessible, as you said, to, to everyone. They're how we exist in the world. We look at things, we feel things. And I wonder how your ideas about both energy and perception have, have changed or evolved over this time. They've evolved in that as you make each piece, you learn from it. And you try to alter the next piece from what you learned on the whole body of work that you've done before. At the current time, I am involved in a new body of work that is not just parabolic. I'm involved in a slice cylindrical work for the first time in my life in that sort of a way. Actually, I, it, it harkens back to my very earliest pieces uh, that I did in 19. My one man show at the Whitney Museum with similar type shapes, and I never really pushed it as far as one could push it because I got involved with the circular parabolic pieces. So now I'm, I'm trying something radically new and uh, we'll see what happens. The early 
experiments incredibly promising. I love the word radical. So can you talk about what's radical for you about these new works that you're working on? But they're not circular parabolic pieces. They're sliced cylinders of various sorts, and they do incredible things with refracting and reflecting the light and the, and the people around and the environment around. I'm making, uh, you know, 18 feet tall, 16 foot tall outdoor transparent works sitting in a reflecting pool being lit from below. This very different body of work than the work that uh, I'm most known for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you placed sculptures in water before? There's one piece, the ancient sculpture for the Internal Revenue Service in Washington, D.C. is one of my laminated acrylic and steel pieces placed in the middle of a reflecting pool in front of the uh, main entrance to the IRS headquarters. It's interesting the way materiality is so important in your work and then this idea of perception and what changes what we see. So I'm looking out my window today and it's a very gray day. The marine layer is here and it changes my perception of everything. So there's more water in the air today. Everything looks different. Well, it's going to continue. In Southern California, that's going to continue and get much worse. Say, say more. By all projections, it's going to continue in Southern California that way and unfortunately get worse. Scientifically, if you read the articles, I've been, I read them every morning. The projections are not very wonderful. So my son suggested a family book group and we had our first meeting of our family book group last night and we're reading a book called The Black Swan and it's about black swan events and how they are completely unpredictable. They catch people off guard because they're out of the realm of what we could previously have imagined to be true. And we had a conversation as part of that discussion about climate change and whether there were aspects of climate change that would fit into the black swan criteria. I understand exactly what they're saying, but the projection and the near term, I can't, I'm not smart enough to know about the adventure, but the near, the near term projection for the West Coast is not very favorable. You know, I mean, it's going to be higher seas and lower water in the reservoirs and restricted um, use of water. I'm not seeing what I'm liking weather-wise in terms of Los Angeles. So how does it feel to be working in New York after decades in California? Oh, it's very different. I mean, I get into a car much less. 95% of the time I walk to two blocks or three blocks or five blocks, one way or another way. I mean, New York has its problems, but weather-wise and temperature-wise and everything, it's actually uh, fairly good. But the main thing is, is that, you know, I mean, from here to Tribeca, for almost every gallery I want to go to is uh, 15 minutes and the Museum of Modern Art is 25 minutes. And, uh, you know, which is a very different thing than Southern California where you're in a car 
almost every day or every two days just to eat and buy groceries or certainly to go to a museum, certainly to do anything cultural. And so it's a very different kind of lifestyle. So in a lot of ways, it's much better for me. And do you think it affects your work? I mean, I, I just finished a year and a half, two years of a whole series of brand new lenses that I think are the very best I've ever made. And then I got the opportunity to bid on this commission for West Palm Beach. And there they needed pieces that were tall as opposed to round. So, I mean, I'm still making round pieces, but I'm also now pushing very hard making flat pieces or tall pieces, what I used to call cathedrals in the old days. Everyone around involved in the process are incredibly excited. Everyone's excited, including myself, my dealer, the, the card basket. Everyone's excited about this new direction and we'll see how I pull it off. So did you say that they're called cathedrals? Oh, that's what I called them in the old days, uh, you know. Yeah. In the uh, late 60s, early 70s, they were called cathedrals, yes. Do you think about a spiritual aspect with no. your work? or no. So it's like an architectural reference? I think about it, uh, a gut feeling as opposed to spiritual. I mean, you could say that spiritual is, you know, gut level is spiritual. But I mean, I know my reaction. I know reactions of a lot of people that see them. It sort of grabs an enormous range of people for the few people that I've managed to show them to so far. So how did you come to use resin and plastic? I wanted something that was transparent and mechanical and that you could color. The choices are relatively little. I mean, you could do it in glass, but that has incredible limitations and requires incredible ovens and such, you know. I wanted something I could work in my studio, do it all myself at some reasonable cost, so it could be sold at a reasonable cost. Uh, and the resin was the best thing. I mean, in those days, there was epoxy resin and uh, polyester resin and a couple other resins. And so, you know, trying to push those same kinds of concepts and the transparent medium with changing light situations is a whole new challenge. And uh, one that I never I envisioned it, but it was always too, too difficult to do. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to do it. I found a good fabricator here in New York. I found a good lighting consultant. I found, you know, I mean, just a whole range of things, plus my own experiments. And we're pushing it. I mean, it may turn out to be, it's always a, a chance or not. It may turn out to be, I don't think so, but it could always turn out to be a dud. We'll find out. <laughs> and if it is, I mean, I've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money. And, uh, but, you know, I learned a lot. And, uh, but I think it's going to work. So how? End up being some of the best work I've ever done. Can you talk about your relationship to failure? I mean, I think that's one of the things that's quite interesting about science. Even things that don't go as planned are often very productive. And I wonder if that informs your approach to making art. 
Well, I've had relatively little experience in terms of my own art with failure. I've had failure in uh, when I was an engineer, and not because of me, but because of other people. Okay. I, so I experienced it on a massive scale uh, with the whole facility imploding, tens of millions of dollars going up to, in one month out swoop, uh, the admiral in charge being fired, I mean, on and on and on. And my little job, which is just instrumenting it, went perfectly. I got perfect records of the failure. <laughs> you know, what can I say? <laughs> As an artist, I don't think I had anything that really was a failure. I mean, I started out doing photography. My first photograph was photographing Frank Stella for Gemini, and uh, it made the back cover of my form. So, I mean, it's not a failure. And from there, I went into uh, casting a resin. Uh, my first little couple of pieces were bought by a woman who unfortunately just died, Diana Zlotnick, a very well-known collector in Los Angeles. She bought my first very, very early pieces. I made a, a bunch of LA collectors, not only LA, but Orange County and Santa Barbara and Oakland, San Francisco and New York collectors. Really put me on the map. I mean, my first gallery show was called The Last California Show at Pace Gallery with Bob Irwin and Robert Irwin and on and on and on. And from there I went to OK Harris and uh, sold that out. And in the, you know, had a one-man show at the Whitney that sold out. Then an edition for Marion Goodman that sold out, uh, two editions. And that was all in the first year and a half. Um, and the show at the Jewish Museum that went to Milwaukee. Uh, Milwaukee bought, uh, purchased a piece, my first large museum purchase. I was lucky, I mean, I had an incredible amount of success within three years of starting making art. And it's continued. I've never been a superstar in the way of Lauschenberg, but I've had a very successful career. Uh, I was the first artist in residence at the Smithsonian for three years. That was incredible. I had two one-man shows at the National Academy of Sciences. That was incredibly well seen by everyone in Washington and very well received. And so, I mean, I think I, I, a lot in Europe, I mean, the big piece for the World's Fair and Seville and so on and on and on. A lot of things in Europe. Uh, I've been going to Europe since 65 and been very successful. And so, I mean, I have nothing to complain about. I mean, there's parts of the world that I've had relatively little art, South America, just Brazil, really. And so there's all of South America, there's all of Africa. I've had just a couple of pieces. I only have a couple of pieces in Asia, uh, though I've been to China or through China and such. A couple of pieces there. So I've, I've had a good, a good life, a good career. And I mean, I have, uh, you know, these two, your show and the, the Benton show. And the uh, one-man show at the Kabansky Gallery, and uh, now it's a year from now, basically. A lot of gallery, I, you know, Art Basel, Basel, Art Basel, Miami. I mean, I have more than I need, hope to, to get. I mean, I'm too busy in a lot of ways. I'm in a show that opens in Columbia. I have a, I'm in a traveling show that's traveling around a bunch of uh, museums. Uh, you know, what can I say? 
It's, it's been a good life. I'd love to have you talk about your show at the Whitney with Marsha Tucker. Marsha Tucker was a mentor for me and an incredible curator and museum director and, and super adventurous. Her time at the Whitney was characterized by making really, really brave choices of the work that she was showing. And I'd love to ask you to talk about her and your experience of working with her and, and about that exhibition specifically. Well, I've known Marsha since she was Marsha Silverman. Hmm. Uh, and she was, whatever, 16 years old, and I was 15 years old. We both worked at the Folklore Center, 166 McDougal Street in, in Greenwich Village. She played guitar, I played five-string banjo, and then she got married to Bill Tucker and blah, blah, blah. I became an engineer. Uh, we lost track of each other. When I went back to New York with my first little suitcase of tiny little pieces, I stopped and saw her and she was very intrigued. And she offered me a one-man show. Or the, the Whitney offered me a one-man show. So I ended up being having a one-man show in 1970. And just before my show opened at the Whitney, I was in a... Uh, one piece in a show at the Jewish Museum in New York, just a couple of months before the Whitney show. And then that show traveled to Milwaukee. It's a complicated history, but a good history. When you're referencing the Jewish Museum show, was that when Keniston McShine was a curator there? He was a curator, yes. You know, I worked at the Jewish Museum, obviously much later than that. But one of the things that drove me to my interest in working at the Jewish Museum was Kenneth D. McShine's tenure there and the shows that he had put together. Another visionary curator, super courageous and, and able to see things before other people could see them. Right. I think this is a very long time ago now, my God. But from what I remember, though this show opened at the Jewish Museum, it was organized by the Milwaukee Museum. Hmm. Not by Keniston. I think I met Keniston at the opening of the Jewish of the, at the Jewish Museum. I think it was organized by Jack Taylor. It was organized by Jack Taylor, who was the chief curator for the Milwaukee Art Museum at the time. Just for the context of our listeners, we're talking about like 55 years ago. 55 years ago. 57, yeah. So between the Pace Show and the uh, the Whitney show uh, put me on the map in New York, and the Jewish Museum show put me on the map in New York. So we are working on a solo show together, which will be one of the exhibitions that opens up the new Orange County Museum of Art. This will be your second solo exhibition with the Orange County Museum of Art. Your first one was in 1978, and I would love to have you talk about both shows, the first one and the one that's coming up. My first show was, I was still, it was when the, when the museum was still on the pier. Mm -hmm. Newport Harbor. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got to know the curators and such. And that's where I got to know an awful lot of my collectors. I mean, Carl Neiser, who became chairman of the board. And, uh, and his One of my favorite Jim, people. Yeah, Jim Pick and uh, the Dowdermans. And I can go and make a name, a lot of names. I mean, they were very important to me in terms of uh, 
support. I mean, not only did I have those shows, I did, I don't know, I think three or four, they had those masks every year where they gave, sent out the artists uh, paper mache mask and you had to do something with them. Hmm. Uh, and then they auctioned them off. I still have one mask, because I got two masks with you. So I still have one undone mask sitting hanging on my wall here in New York. So I did the mask. I did the large commission for the battlements. Uh, plus, they bought three small pieces. The Nices bought two pieces. The Nices were my basically home in Orange County. So I, I stayed it was there an incredibly important place. I, there's all kinds of stories. Uh, too many stories. Uh, when I had my first show in Orange County, which was not the museum, but Jack Van Gallen is my major, show. you know, I had a one-man show at Jack Van. My girlfriend and I were stopped by the police just north of Newport Beach, uh, or at the very beginning of Newport Beach, uh, because, I mean, what the fuck was I doing that kind of thing? And uh, I was taken to the police station. I was allowed to make a phone call. I called the gallery. At the gallery was not only Jack Glenn and Connie, but also the mayor of Newport Beach. <laughs> and they all jumped in their cars and ran up to the police station and got me released immediately. Yeah, that was the opening of the, the, the first, it was the inaugural show of Jack Glenn Gallery was me. And uh, <laughs> that was the story on that. Then, I mean, there's a million Orange County stories. I mean, I, I once I went to a show on the pier, with a woman who wasn't my girlfriend, but just a, a woman friend who was a banker, a German banker from Los Angeles. And we were driving up the Pacific Coast Highway, just north of uh, the, the museum, the current museum. Uh, yeah, the current museum. And there was a house for sale. And she said, pull over. And she went in and bought the house. I mean, for, I mean, I, no money. I mean, she had no money. I mean, she got a second, a third, and fourth. I mean, it's a crazy scene. Anyway, that woman ended up marrying Nina Albuquerque's brother, and they were a couple until the German woman died. I mean, there's a million stories. And after Jack Glenn died and the gallery closed, Connie Glenn became a curator at several Orange County museums. So, I mean, I, I got to know Orange County extremely well. I was there at least once a week, not only in Newport, but I mean, in, uh, yeah, Newport, but also further south, uh, very close to uh, San Diego. Uh, San Diego, I had a big commission in the banks. I had a piece in San, a major piece in San Diego. But I mean, that's where Paul Brockland and, and several other artists were living on that strip on the beachfront, uh, facing the ocean, south of uh, Orange County, uh, just north of San Diego. And the woman who was my hostess, when I had this show, my first, that first museum show in Milwaukee, and was responsible for Milwaukee buying the piece, is still alive and living uh, just south of the museum. I'm sure we'll come to your opening. She was the president of the uh, Milwaukee Art Museum. So, I mean, that was a very important museum for me. And Joan arranged, and Oscar Robinson retired at the city of Milwaukee, chipped in to buy one of my sculptures that I threw to Milwaukee and presented to him halftime in the basketball game. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's a million stories, but I mean, it's been a very good life. Who would you 
say are artists that you think have influenced you the most? Influenced me the most, my God. Well, I mean, certainly Larry Bell is someone I look at a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and always have. I mean, and I was his technical consultant uh, when he was putting together his first vacuum chamber in, in LA. All kinds of people influenced me. I mean, you know, I mean, Koso Alu. I mean, I don't know if you know who Koso Alu is, really a sculptor. I influence people more, I think, than people influence me. I know that you and, and Courtney Finn have been speaking about black holes in relationship to some of the descriptions of the black opaque lenses, like the one that we have in our collection at the Orange County Museum of Art. And I know that a, a photo from NASA of a black hole was recently released. Curious what you think about that. The guy who got the Nobel Prize for physics for, for discovering gravitational waves, which is all about black holes, frankly. He is writing, he interviewed me. He's on my advisory committee for the Benton Museum. Huh. Uh, and he just did about an hour and a half interview on me. And he talked about black holes and such. And the guy, I mean, Soho, where I live, is a crazy neighborhood. You know, 20 years ago or so, private dealer who had the apartment immediately in back of my, in my third floor, and he had, uh, what's his name, who was uh, the guy who knew all about black holes. I mean, Stephen Hawkins. Stephen Hawkins, yeah. Uh, so he literally was at the party, I mean, look out my bedroom window, as he told me everything he knew about black holes. So Soho was this kind of crazy neighborhood where you had people like Hawkins, as well as audio artists. I mean, Crystal lived a half a block away from me, and I saw him every day just about and things. And that's something that is more unique to New York than LA. You have much more proximity to a wider range of people doing interesting kinds of work. I love your saying that you've had a really great life. I think that is true. And I think it's so important to acknowledge, I'm grateful to know you and to know your work and to have some small piece in hopefully sharing it with people who haven't yet seen it yet, and also sharing it with people who are already long-term committed fans. So thank you for your time today and for your participation for such a long time with, with the museum. The, uh, you know, the guy who's headed the Warhol Foundation uh, is uh, Julian. Uh, the director of Kansas City, and then Joe Wax uh, yeah. is the president. Uh, Joe Wax and I were close when he was city councilman in LA. He did an enormous favor for me in getting when, uh, and this is ancient history now, when uh, Yugoslavia was sort of breaking up and uh, uh, blah, blah, blah was happening. The people, uh, I was having a show in Libyana, and, and, uh, and they asked me that if I could get some kind of official support for them from America. And they <laughs> came back, and Joe Wax got the city council of LA to vote a proclamation supporting the people of Libyana, right? This is all true, right? We sent this whole thing to Libyana, which ended up being a major thing in them getting their freedom. Uh, wow. 
And uh, so Joe Wax and I go back forever, right? Uh, when, I mean, that happened in the, in the mid-70s, my God. Uh, when I had the show there and uh, I, I went there after the Venice Biennale, I, I drove around to uh, Ljubljana and uh, uh, and then that whole thing happened uh, and uh, Yugoslavia was fighting them and uh, blah, blah, blah. And somehow I got through the bullets and managed to make it back to LA. I went to Joel and he got the proclamation uh, signed and I sent it off to them and it all happened. It all worked. So amazing you know, what art can do, right? And and the things that are asked of artists. Yeah, it's been a good life. I mean, it's been a life combining, you know, uh, my engineering. And uh, I'm sitting here now uh, with my wife, who's a, a wonderful uh, uh, architect and, and helping me a lot. Amazing. All right. Be well today. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Fantastic. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Check back in two weeks when my guest will be another artist, Hebrew Brantley. We talk about how to make our lives magical and how to tell our own stories and how to build community around things that we have in common and that we love. Conversations About Art is part of HiZ.Art a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being a part of our community.